Ronasson. So as you well know in the cultivation of the four immeasurables, we start with the cultivation of loving kindness, and within that cultivation we begin with ourselves, right? And then from that we extend out to, to loved ones, to friends, neutral, until eventually barriers are broken down. But it's very much from the inside to the outside, until there's an evenness, and of course those four immeasurables culminate in equanimity, which really includes, encompasses the loving kindness, compassion, and empathetic joy, and it's just kind of like evening them all out. You know, it's kind of like the final touch to make sure it's all smooth, and then that's really all the barriers are broken down, and then you can speak of it being immeasurable, and that is having this real evenness between self and other, and among, and among others also the evenness. And for those of you been, who have been trained in Mahayana, specifically in the cultivation of bodhicitta, you'll know that's the very first stage. That's the foundation for all of the, cultiva- the entire cultivation of bodhicitta. The very first one is the evenness. If you don't have that, if you're starting off, starting off on uneven ground, preferring self over other or some others over other others, then that'll be like building a, a tower of Pisa you know, intending for it already to be falling over. Now, in contrast, when we look for that which actually catalyzes, launches oneself onto the Bodhisattva path, this great compassion, that's where it begins. That's the seminal one, the catalytic one. And as I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, that's the one that, as we arouse it, it seems to stir from the depths our own Buddha nature, almost as, as if we're calling to it from afar, you know, as we call deep, deep, deep within, like calling way down a, 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 a way down a uh, how do you say a tunnel, like hello down there, come up, you know, because of course great compassion makes no sense unless it's coming from that depth, right? We've been there already, so the great compassion actually doesn't start from inside. It doesn't start focusing upon oneself. Love and kindness did quite appropriately. But kind of like we're beyond that now, right? If we're not beyond that, well, then go back and work on the four measurables again, starting with loving kindness, starting with yourself. But by the time you come to great equanimity, then you are ready, because now the mind, the heart is wide open, attending closely, making real the reality of others' presence in this world. And of course, as we attend closely with eyes of wisdom, than a reality that just looms large is a reality of suffering. And not just blatant suffering. That's obvious. But of course, not everyone is blatantly suffering all the time. A lot of people are enjoying their lives. At least they have episodes here and there. Others really enjoy it on the whole. They enjoy their way of life, their marriages, their children, their jobs, and so forth. Nobody's denying that, right? But of course, there's that deeper stratum of suffering, that it, insofar as your well-being is all built on the pillars of attachment craving and, and glinging, then that's pretty precarious, right? So you've been through that, all three dimensions of suffering. So when one looks upon all sentient beings with the eyes of wisdom, one is aware of that whole spectrum, the entire spectrum of, of dukkha, of suffering, from the blatant to the suffering of change to existential suffering. And so with this utter open heart, where the very sense of reified duality between self and others has really kind of melted away. And 
then great compassion arises. Because the notion of somehow drawing a line in the sand and saying, OK, this is my part, and this is for everybody else, and I'm going to now strive for my liberation from suffering, it just doesn't make any sense. And so as we already have a commitment, whether we're practicing dharma, living whatever kind of life, we already have a commitment to be taking care of ourselves. We do. Even people who commit suicide are doing their best to take care of themselves, thinking this is the freedom from suffering. They're doing that as an act of compassion to themselves. Misguided, delusional. But nevertheless, the motivation is there. I'm trying to take care of myself, and I see no hope staying alive. Therefore, I'm going to choose the other option. It must be better than what I'm facing now. So, very sad choice, delusional choice, right? But still, it's a choice stemming from compassion for themselves. So there we are. We've already taken on the resolve, the responsibility, the commitment. All right, I shall relieve myself from suffering. We've all done it. We've already done it. Every time you scratch, every time you move, every time you make any big decision, it's that yearning to be free of suffering, the causes of suffering, free of anxiety, fear, distress, depression, and so forth. Every move you make. You know, the old song. We've already made that commitment. We don't need to learn that from anybody else, not from religious teachers or anybody else. We've already made this commitment. May I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, and I commit myself, I resolve myself, I take upon myself the commitment to do so. And we do every day. People who marry, who marry do that out of that motivation. People who divorce do that out of the same motivation. Right? But now what about if that sense of real barrier, the real line in the sand between I'm over here and all the rest of you are over there, what happens if that, that line in the sand is washed away? And now what do you do? You either don't care about anybody at all, including yourself, or else you care about everybody. But there's really no other option. If you've already laid that foundation in equanimity, which is what the four measurables were all about, the culmination, the final glory of the four measurables is equanimity. If you've laid that foundation, then you've only got one of two options, really. Either don't care about anybody equally, and that includes yourself, but then you can't do that. It's not an option. You can't turn that switch off. From now on, I will no longer care about my own well-being. If I suffer, I suffer. I don't care one way or another. Nobody can do that. So since that's not an option, we have only one option. And that is to take on the resolve yourself for everybody's freedom. Right? Freedom from blatant suffering, freedom from the suffering of change, freedom from existential suffering. As I want it for myself, and I have no choice. I have to not only want it for everybody else, but I have to have a resolve, a commitment. Because to anything less is not realistic. So as as wild as that sounds, I take upon myself the commitment to relieve all sentient beings from suffering and the causes of suffering. All sentient beings throughout the universe. I'm not going to draw a line in sand between planet Earth and other inhabited planets. Why should I? That's just one more artificial, just a little bit of space in between. You know, what's the big deal about space? There's not much to it. So as one arouses such a resolve, and then you keep your eyes open. And you envision, as you arouse that great compassion, you envision all sentient beings being free. You invite that from the world of potentiality into the world of actuality. 
and you visualize it, as we did yesterday, and the day before, as you visualize that, it's almost as if you've rescued from people who are out in the ocean of samsara, and you've pulled, you've, you dove down in, and then you find them. I was actually trained as a, a lifeguard, and so I know what it's like, I know how you're supposed to catch them, and so you don't get drowned or beaten up yourself. There's this very special hold. And so you dive down, and they may be actually almost, they may be actually unconscious already, or they may be floundering, struggling. And so if you try to, I remember this so vividly, I was like 13, but if you have a person who is floundering, drowning, they're panicked, they're freaking out, and if you try to come and save them, they may claw at you. They're so freaking out, they can't think in their right minds. They may claw at you, they may pull you down, they may strangle you, they, they're just freaking out. And they don't know whether you're coming to drown them, whether to save them, to eat them. They don't know. They're just, they're drowning. They're freaking out. Their minds are not clear. And so you have to protect yourself if you're coming down to save somebody. And that's why there's a special hold to get them from behind so they can't beat you and flail you and strangle you and poke your eyes out and so forth. They're not doing that out of malice, but they're just terrified, right? So it's a very special hold. And then you get there, and then you bring them up. But by the time you bring them up, and they go, <gasps> like that. It's called jungwa. They're gasping. They're going for breath. You've brought them to the surface. You've relieved them. You've saved them. They're not going to die. You've brought them to the surface. Great. That's what great compassion was for. Where they were drowning, where they're underwater, where they're panic-stricken, terrified, suffering. You get them up so they can breathe. But now what? Now that you've got them up to the surface, now what? Now that compassion has done what it needed to do, you relieve them from suffering and the causes of suffering, good. Now what? Now look at the great sky. Look at everything above the water. And now envision great loving kindness. Now that you're saved, now that you're not going to drown, now how about not only surviving, getting by, how about flourishing? How about finding genuine happiness and not just getting by for a while and then dying as if that was the grand culmination of existence in the universe? Survived for a while and then didn't. Was that it? Survived for a while, had some more babies so they can survive for a while and then die, and their babies survive for a while and die. Is that it? Is that really it? that we all just keep on creating progeny that can survive a while and then not? Is that it? What an exercise in futility. What, how pointless. Why should we even survive? What's the big deal? I mean, you survive for a while and you don't. So you don't anyway, so why bother in the first place? If that's really it. Why bother? Because it's not a very happy trajectory in between, from birth to death. I mean, there's an awful lot of trouble. So why not just go extinct? Who would care? What's the big deal? But what if that's not all there is? That now your head is above water, you've survived. Great, you've survived. You can procreate if you want to. But beyond that, you might actually live a meaningful life. You might actually find genuine happiness. And that's where great loving-kindness comes in. So whereas the four immeasurables start with loving-kindness, immeasurable loving-kindness towards oneself and extending outwards, the greats begin with compassion.
great compassion. Aspiring to get everybody's head above water so they survive, they can procreate if they want. But now what's beyond the hedonic? And that's where great loving kindness, maha maitri, comes in. Now that's the meaning of existence. Great compassion allows us to exist, not to perish, not to be simply miserable. But great loving kindness opens up the doorway to great flourishing and the very meaning of existence. And not just existing so that we can exist. So let's practice. as an expression of great love and kindness for yourself. Opening the doorway to flourishing on all levels. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Calm and soothe the mind with mindfulness of breathing.
then arouse your mind. Activate this luminous quality of your own consciousness. As you open your, open your awareness, open your heart to all sentient beings, without drawing any lines in the sand, without throwing up any barriers between self and others, or one group of others and another group of others, but attending to us all, each one wishing to find happiness, each one wishing to be free of suffering. And consider, first of all, hedonic well-being, never to be overlooked or marginalized simply not to be taken as an end in itself. But attending first to hedonic well-being, arouse the question, why couldn't we all find happiness in the causes of happiness? For the time being, focus especially on the human population. In our world here that we know best, is there any real reason why we couldn't all flourish? All of us have enough food, shelter, clothing, medical care, education. Why couldn't we all find happiness and the causes of happiness? And as we look beyond hedonic well-being to genuine happiness, let's attend, first of all, for this morning, to this immensely important dimension of genuine happiness that arises from leading an ethical way of life, so simple, leading a way of life that by way, by, by way of our body, speech, and mind, we avoid harmful behavior, harmful to ourselves and others, and we act out of kindness, it is actually very simple. But why could we not all experience the genuine happiness 
of leading lives based on the principle of nonviolence and benevolence towards all creatures and to the natural environment. Then with each outbreath arouse the aspiration. May we all find such happiness with all of our hedonic needs met and experience the genuine happiness that arises from an ethical way of engaging with others in the natural environment. With each outbreath arouse this loving motivation of great loving kindness. Imagine light flowing forth from your heart in all directions. Embracing all sentient beings in this light of loving kindness with every outbreath.
then, if you will, arouse the resolve from the very depths of your own pristine awareness. I shall bring each one to genuine happiness and its causes. To genuine happiness derived from nonviolence, from benevolence. With each outbreath, breathe out this light of loving kindness.
then if you wish, move to the final phase of the meditation. If you have a guru, you may call upon your guru. Call upon all enlightened beings. for their blessings that you may be enabled to carry through with this resolve. With each in-breath, imagine receiving the blessings, the empowerment, the loving-kindness, the joy of these enlightened ones, this light converging in upon you from all sides. With every out-breath, send this light out to the world and imagine aspiration becoming true, that each one finds such well-being that is so clearly within grasp, so clearly possible for each one. Imagine it to be so. And release all appearances and aspirations. Let your awareness rest in its own nature with no object.
Vanasu. It's been asked within the Buddhist context whether there will actually come a time, however long it may be in the future, when all sentient beings, not only in this planet, but through all galaxies, and bear in mind the Buddhist worldview is at least as large as that of modern cosmology, which is very large. Will there come a time when all sentient beings have achieved perfect enlightenment? And the answer from the best authorities that I've heard is we don't know. We don't know. Hope so, but don't know, let alone knowing when. It's out there in the ocean of probability, of possibility, but the island hasn't formed yet. So then we have to leave it. But then we ask a much more pragmatic question. And that is, can we point to any sentient being anywhere in the universe and say, you'll never achieve enlightenment? Ever, 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 ever. Ever, 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 never. No. Not, you can't say that of anybody. Doesn't matter who they are. Whatever evil they've done, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. No one is absolutely hopeless. Now, may there be some people who are utterly hopeless within the context of this lifetime. I've had really wonderful conversations with Paul Ekman about this. I think we agree. Yeah, could be. We can't say, yes, this person. But could it happen that a person could be so committed to, let's say, really malevolent racism or sexual abuse or mass murder, ethnic cleansing, a sociopath, a person who is maybe brain damaged, like this, I don't know whether he's brain damaged or not, but this, this poor fellow up in Norway, no remorse at all. He thought everything he did was good, killing all those people, and he would do it again. Well, as long as he holds that, as here I will say, I'm careful with my logic, this fellow who killed all those people, as long as he holds that view, he's hopeless. You're not going to achieve enlightenment and hold that view simultaneously. So as long as you're holding that view, as long as there's no remorse, no wisdom, hopeless, but that's just for as long as. Who can say in five years, 10 years, 15 years, that he might like some of the racists in the United States back in the 1950s, 60s, really committed to racism. And then some of them just turned right around and said, gosh, I was so wrong. And they actually outgrew it. It did happen. That's good. So could it, is it absolutely impossible for this fellow, this fellow, this racist, in this lifetime that he couldn't turn around? No, we don't know. Hope he turns around. But if he doesn't, to his dying day, he feels I'm justified, I'm justified, I'm justified. I do it again. Then he's hopeless. But here's where the working hypothesis of continuity of individual consciousness beyond death actually has some real pragmatic value. So you're hopeless for this lifetime. There's still hope. So I pray, may we meet in the future life. I don't remember the guy's name. But may I meet you in the future life. Because you'll get over this. Nobody can hold that kind of delusion infinitely or eternally. No delusion is that tenacious that it's just absolutely stuck in your core. You'll be somebody else next time. You'll be somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. You'll be a woman. You'll be a man. You'll be an African, an American. Who knows what? After he spent some time maybe in other realms. 
And so when the time is ripe, may I help you then. When your mind is not closed, may I help you then and lead you on the path to genuine happiness. So okay, so you're hopeless just for this lifetime. That's, it'll pass. That's a helpful working hypothesis, that no matter what people are doing, you can say, it's a phase. It's a phase. We all do crazy things. I've done crazy things. I've done some very unwholesome things in my life. I've lived long enough. It was a phase. And I'm not finished. I still have phases. But that's what Dharma's for. But to be able to look on any kind of evil. Individuals do it. Cultures do it. The decimation of the Native Americans, the decimation of the Aborigines in, in Australia, the decimation of the Native Americans in Ar Argentina. Pretty thorough. Really awful. But it was a phase. And people, sometimes whole cultures outgrow their kind of delusions. Right? So I think that's actually very important. Not that we now all have to believe in reincarnation, but I'm saying as a working hypothesis, this one opens the heart more rather than feeling you're hopeless in this lifetime, therefore forget you. You're just evil. And then we draw the line in the sand. You're out. You're hopeless. I'm not going to include you. Because why, again, why should we aspire for something, let alone have a resolve for something that is flat out impossible? I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Life is too short. I'm going to aspire for things that are possible and not waste any time aspiring for, let alone developing resolve for something that's impossible. Life is too short for that. So to develop an authentic aspiration, resolve, then I think a more fruitful working hypothesis is. Even if we have to very candidly say, and as, as we quite rightly should, at least for most of us, I don't know. I don't know what happens at that. I'd like to find out. But in the meantime, for as long as I don't know, I've got two working hypotheses. Both of them have reasons behind them. And I just speak now for myself. This one's going to be more benevolent. And to my mind, of course, this has much greater evidence behind it. And so I'm going to choose that one. Because it opens the heart more. No lines in the sand. Oh, yeah. Enjoy your day.